in association with the Science Europe Journal of Global Affairs, this is the Analyst Interview Project. I'm Matthew Schleich. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Doa Aralp to talk Turkish mediation between Russia and Ukraine. Doa Aralp is a scholar practitioner of international conflict resolution, and he also quite literally wrote the book on Turkish mediation efforts. This chat ends up being really fascinating as we peel back the layers of strategy that are involved in the resolution of violent conflict. This interview was recorded on April 14th, 2022. Given the fluidity of the Ukrainian conflict, events may have changed before the publishing of this podcast. I'll see you after the show. Professor, thanks for joining us. Before we get into our conversation, could you just give us a brief introduction on your background and your research? Uh, thanks for having me, Matt. Uh... I am a scholar practitioner of conflict resolution for the past 20 years or so. Uh, and my area of work is uh, actually about how identities, institutional identities, impact the practice of conflict resolution by um, critical actors in global conflict zones. So over the years, I did work in understanding how policies are designed at the uh, headquarters and are actually implemented uh, on the ground. So I did work on European Union a long time, looking into its uh, role as an actor of peace in the Western Balkans and also in Eastern Mediterranean. I also am originally from Turkey. So I was very much interested in understanding how Turkey's changing political identity impacted its uh, work as a mediator, uh, among others. So I am also very much interested in uh, exploring the role of human rights and how it impacts uh, social identities and what that in protracted conflicts. So uh, that's, a, and I'm currently a senior professorial lecturer at the International Peace and Conflict Resolution Master's Program here at School of International Service at American University. Great. Uh, today, of course, I want to focus in on mediation and specifically Turkey's potential role as a key mediator in Russia's war against Ukraine. But I first want to lay the analytical groundwork for, uh, for the discussion. Could you tell me from an academic perspective, what characteristics do mediators on the, on the international stage typically have and why do these actors spend their limited time and resources on mediation in the first place? I mean, uh, one thing many, I think, needs to comprehend when it comes to the uh, motivation for mediation is uh, for actors who are involved in the practice of this work, there needs to be some sort of a win set, as we call it, that uh, should promote and prompt engagement. Uh, so when you look into the plethora of actors who are involved in mediation in different capacities, using different instruments, uh, achieving uh, different ends, uh, using a variety of means, uh, we across the board see a number of political objectives that work to their own benefits. So going back to the earlier uh, definition or the discussion really about uh, whether third parties could be neutral or not, as a practitioner of two decades, my answer to that is not necessarily. They could be impartial, but they may not necessarily have what we call neutrality in an essential sense. They all have their own agendas. 
And uh, I think we as uh, scholar practitioners, one important caveat of our work is to figure out what motivates uh, mediators to engage and like you mentioned, spend their limited resources in bringing parties together. What is in it for them? Uh, and for that matter, I think we need to take stock of, let's say the earlier US role in early 90s, bringing the parties together in the Middle East peace process and later in towards the end of 90s, uh, the role of Bill Clinton administration in uh, promoting the peace in Northern Ireland among others, there always is something for the third party. So going back to our conversation today, there are a certain uh, options that work in Turkey's favor uh, to mediate between Russia and Ukraine. And I'll be happy to shed more light into what those uh, motivations may be. Yeah, uh, and I would love to turn to Ukraine. Um, and, and Turkey does seem to be uh, taking an early initiative in the mediation efforts. How would you judge Turkey as a uh, a balanced mediator? Are, are they leaning towards one side or the other? I know their dynamics are changing, uh, you know, year by year at this point. How do you judge them to be balanced? I mean, first and foremost, we need to look into the uh, changing nature of Turkey's political identity. Uh, ever since the inception of the Turkish Republic in 1923, and obviously during the Cold War and its aftermath, Turkey has been staunchly a part of the Western system of politics. Uh, what did change over the last decade or so though? The Erdogan government uh, projected their own unique vision of what some call a neo-Ottoman perspective on the capacity and set of roles Turkey could play globally, meaning leveraging different uh, tools within Turkey's toolbox uh, to reach its uh, objectives, not necessarily limited only to the Western alliance, but also other forms of alliance outside the West. Uh, so when we look into Turkey's burgeoning relations with Russia proper, uh, we should understand that as Turkey explored non-Western options of projecting its foreign policy goal regionally, uh, globally, and also uh, more at a bilateral basis, uh, one of the closest partners it managed to identify became Russia, right? Uh, that does not mean both countries see eye to eye on a number of issues. They do not, uh, primarily on Syria and in Middle East largely, including Libya. But their larger uh, disengagement or disillusionment from the Western politics uh, turned Moscow and Ankara into close partners, I wouldn't go as far to call them allies, but not strategic partners either, but a working partnership that benefits both countries, uh, economically, militaristically, and strategically. Yet, right, uh, and that's what makes Turkey's position rather interesting when you look into the ongoing war in Ukraine, 
Turkey remains a significant actor within NATO. The Turkish armed forces are the largest after the Americans within NATO's military flank. And uh, Turkish armed forces play a strategic deterrence role ever since the uh, mid 50s up until now against Russia. So that also is an important part of Turkey's political identity that we need to take into consideration if we were to understand both Western and non-Western instruments Turkey has its disposal when it, it, when it engages with Russia. That's its more non-Western pro-Eurasian reorientation of some of its foreign policy objectives while its engagement with Ukraine is obviously uh, carried out more through Turkey's Western alignment of its uh, policy preferences, primarily through its NATO membership, and how Turkey is now using its uh, developing weapons and military industry uh, to open up newer markets within and without NATO, uh, especially for its armed drones, which uh, as you know, many of these images coming from the uh, war scene in Ukraine show that had performed uh, to their objectives in destroying uh, Russian military vehicles and whatnot. So for that matter, Turkey's role is a very a unique role engaging in both military and economic relations with both countries. And let me remind you, Turkey did purchase S-400 missile defense systems from Russia. And as a result of that, as uh, the listeners may recall, was kicked out of the F-35 uh, fighter jet uh, project that many Turkish engineers actually participated from the beginning and was punished by the US Congress for having participated in that. But now Turkey finds itself again back into the fold of NATO as being the first line of contact of Russia against the West. And uh, that puts Turkey in a very, very unique position that Turkey has not necessarily joined in the sanctions against Russia because uh, the Turkish real estate market appears to have benefited quite well from the uh, flooding of the Russian oligarchs' investments in the Turkish Mediterranean coast, as we speak, in areas in Antalya and elsewhere. So there's that aspect of it, along with the growing uh, economic engagement with Ukraine. So it seems that the the relationship is incredibly complicated between Turkey, uh, Russia, and Ukraine, but if there is a slight bias by Turkey towards one of those countries, is that necessarily a bad thing from a mediator standpoint or from a conflict resolution standpoint? I think what is critical in any mediation is the transparency of the process. Uh, we always emphasize uh, the importance of trust. The actors, who participate in the mediation process, A, most importantly, has to trust the process so that they could eventually 
own the outcome, right? That's the important. You can't really impose an outcome. That outcome needs to be owned by the stakeholders. And obviously, preceding to that, they need to trust the mediator. And that trust does only emerge as the third party ensures a certain level of transparency and honesty in dealing with the uh, stakeholders. And Ankara exactly does that. It doesn't mean that Turkey is neutral. It is not neutral. It's obviously pro-Ukraine. But at the same time, it does not shy away from its pro-Ukraine stance while engaging with Russia. And actually, interestingly enough, leverages the continuing relations with Russia in favor of Ukraine. And that's a very unique strategy, really, because what makes Turkey a credible mediator from the perspective of Zelensky, as much as also the close circle around Putin, is it's rather upfront nature about where they stand in Ukraine around issues in Ukraine, dating back to 2014, Turkey never recognized Russia's takeover of Crimea as a legitimate uh, political move and constantly denounced Crimea be as a territory captured but illegally by Russia. And Turkey is very clear about that with Russia and yet maintains this very close relationship with Moscow as well. One example, uh, a few days back, Turkish Foreign Minister Çavuşoğlu was meeting with the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Kuleba, while at the same time, Turkish Chief of Staff was just having a closed door meeting with the uh, Russian Chief of Staff, all at the same time. And I believe, as much as many may criticize Erdogan regime as being completely authoritarian and neo-Ottomanistic and whatnot, it does play a constructive role by being so upfront and honest, and we can also call it transparent about its ambitions, keeping its and maintaining its relations with two enemies, Russia and Ukraine. And honestly, there is no other NATO member that does this so bluntly as Turkey does. Neither does Hungary, nor does Italy, right? Although you're in Italy, I understand now. Uh, they try to kind of work things around, but Turkey does it in a very direct, upfront uh, and impactful way. That's what makes Turkey, I think, a credible third party in this particular conflict. I want to turn towards ripeness and leverage, but I, I first want to ask about ripeness. Uh, and in terms of uh, ripeness for mediation, where do we stand in Ukraine? Are we close to a stalemate or do you think that parties still have more to gain from military action? So uh, one needs to, when we talk about ripeness, 
most time, I mean, for most importantly, we need to figure out what may have led to emergence of ripeness in a conflict. So one explanation is parties hurt so much, we call it mutually hurting stalemate, that they no longer feel the drive, political, economic, social drive to maintain the war effort. That's one. And a second option that suggests it may actually be a great time or ripe time to intervene is both parties or however many parties are involved in a conflict ecology face what we call a imminent mutual threat. They don't obviously have that imminent mutual threat and they, for the time being, in my view, are not at that ripe moment yet because Russia and close circle around Putin thinks they still can win this war if they play it towards time. If they play the long game, I think folks within Putin's close circle and Putin himself, of course, believes that Russia could still get what it wants by pursuing the military option. Uh, from Kiev's perspective, what Zelensky, I think, conceptualized as the only way to convince Moscow to sit and negotiate a mutually favorable outcome for both parties is only via hurting Russia more. And I think Zelensky believe, he believes that Russia does not yet feel the burn as much as it should have. And for that matter, right, over the past couple of days, if not longer, we see a growing calls from Zelensky to its partners in NATO to provide more heavy military equipment that could really cause significant damage to the remaining Russian war effort within Ukraine proper. And I think Zelensky, for that matter, believes that if Russian forces are dealt yet another significant, significant strategic and military blow in the east of Ukraine, they would not have any other option than coming to the table. They already did in Antalya a couple of weeks back, but actually listening and talking and agreeing on a set of mutually favorable outcomes for both countries. But Russia is not there yet. So that I think remains to be the most significant challenge of our times at this point. How would, if I'm from a conflict resolution perspective, if we could find a way to convince Russia that, you know what, this war effort in Ukraine is not necessarily gonna be able to deliver without getting the Russian troops hurt more, that would be the most suitable way out, or as the current jargon says, off-ramp, right? But 
I don't think Russia is at a point where they are willing to listen such suggestions. So going back to the Turkish mediation, uh, I don't think that's what the Turks are trying to get here at this point. They're trying to provide a platform where both parties could feel safe to speak about their priorities. But that's not Turkey's role. Turkey is not trying to facilitate, I think, an outcome. It just is trying to facilitate an environment upon which what we call this uh, clear, uninterrupted communication may happen between the parties. So if Turkey's not trying to impact the negotiations or or actively mediate, but just provide a, a platform, is it because they lack the leverage to have an effect over the conflict? Uh, that's a good question. I think at this point, Turkey's audience through its involvement in mediation is not necessarily, if you do ask me, Ukraine and Russia. Turkey is trying to send a more clear message to the West. Look, guys, yeah, I may be kind of going towards the authoritarian route of it, but at the end of the day, I'm the best guy to manage this issue. Look what I'm doing now. Both parties trust me. So the audience for Turkey is not necessarily Kiev or Moscow, but rather Brussels and Washington. And I think Erdogan is much aware of it and gonna try to use Turkey's this newfound mediation role to revamp its relations with the EU, along with its neighbors and with the Americans. And it's also noteworthy to say that Biden administration so far refused to recognize Turkey's role in mediation. And I think Turkey strives to have some sort of recognition by the Biden administration, again, as a strategic American partner in the region, which obviously I would say is a bit short-sighted thinking. Turkey still has the S-400 missile defense systems as the only NATO country having it really. And you know, being the only NATO country being kicked out of the F-35 project and has this kind of cozy relationship with Russia. But yeah, at the same time, they're like, yeah, we still have the same situation, but at the same time, look what we have. Let's not focus on the negative. I'm not sure the appreciation is here in Washington, D.C. yet. But when I look into the comments and uh, the NATO headquarters, and Brussels also in particular, suggests that there is some sort of a softening of a stance towards Turkey within Europe now, looking into the mediation role Turkey is playing so far between Ukraine and Russia. Great. Professor, thanks for your time. No problem. That's it for today. The Analyst Interview Project is an ongoing series of interviews with subject matter experts on contained topics within conflict management and strategy. Are you an analyst? Do you want to talk specifics? Drop me a line. It's Matthew Schleich on Twitter. M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-C-H-L-E-I-C-H. The SICE Europe Journal of Global Affairs is a graduate student-run organization at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. 
The journal publishes peer-reviewed articles for policymakers, academics, and professionals, and they've kindly given me some space for this project. For more information, visit the journal online at sicejournal.eu. That's S-A-I-S-J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot E-U.